Today we get to um, take a look at a life that uh, for, for quite a few years we have uh, on this Sunday thereabout um, taken a look at a saint in Christian history um, that epitomized the life of faith. And uh, we've been studying um, gospel faith in the Old Testament. Um, and we have seen in Hebrews chapter 11 all the examples given to us from the writer of Hebrews to the church he was writing to and to us to believe and to act. Today we're going to take a look um, as an illustration of the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, and I want to say first and foremost, I'm painting very broad strokes. I've not uh, dug on a life like I have dug on Bonhoeffer. And as a result, I have more information than I can even begin to share with you. So my hopes are just to whet your appetite and maybe you'll go read my, pick up these footnotes that are available to you on, on the website and go pick up a book and read more. Um, Hebrews 11, 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And as James would say in James chapter 2, faith without works is dead. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, is there to show us that faith is this working of the Spirit whereby the Lord brings about transformation in a soul and provides the assurance of God's good to them and then turns and begins to work itself out into convictions in the life. Thus, we've discovered that one of the beautiful teachings of Scripture is that there can be no profession of faith without the living out of that faith in action. In action. And in modern times outside of the Bible, maybe Dietrich Bonhoeffer epitomizes that more than anybody I have ever, ever read. <laughs> And to be frank with you, I don't know what to do with him. I've dreaded today for a couple of weeks uh, because I haven't, I'm, I haven't processed Bonhoeffer. Um, and, and part of my fear is, I'm thankful for uh, Nathan this morning uh, comforting me a little bit with a little counsel. I needed some counseling this morning. And so Nathan helped me out. Um, I'm just going to trust that, uh, that the Spirit can take this illustration of Hebrews 11.1. 1, and, uh, and awaken the sleeping giant called the church in America. I, I, I'm going to say this later, but in case I don't get there, because I may not. Uh, the church, where the church is marginalized, and by the way, by its own will. We cannot be marginalized unless we allow ourselves to be marginalized. But where the church is marginalized, atrocities abound. Where the church's active life is born. And so my hopes this morning is that the Lord may take something in this guy's life as he lived this out. And maybe poke and prod us. I don't know so much us as much as 
I would pray that the Lord would allow others to hear this because I think maybe more so than anywhere in this town. And if I didn't say this, I'd be wrong. But I actually firmly believe that you guys do this better than anybody in our town. I think you guys are seeking your best to live out the faith. But I would hope that today the Lord may pour a little gas on the fire that's already been kindled. And, uh, and perhaps use you as an instrument in someone else's life to mobilize the church from our status of being marginalized. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was the son of Karl and Paula Bonhoeffer. Born February 4, 1906. Any February 4 birthdays in here? Bummer. All right. Very good. I don't think anybody famous was born on November 16th, but hey, it's my birthday. But uh, I wouldn't mind being born on February 4. Uh, February 4, 1906, 10 minutes before his twin sister, Sabina. Um, Diedrich was born in Breslau, where his father, Carl, and oh, by the way, I got to just totally, for, this is in the footnotes, but thank you to Bronson, are you here? Bronson Long, uh, I have a man crush on Bronson, historically speaking. Bronson uh, really helped me out with some history here, and uh, this guy's got his PhD in this stuff. He studied in France and Germany, and he knows more about German history than I've ever forgotten, and so I'm totally thankful for Bronson, but um, born in Breslau, and I'm going to try to do the German names justice, and Bronson helped me with that as well. Um, his father, Carl, uh, held the chair of psychiatry and neurology at the university and was director of the hospital for nervous diseases. Carl, in 1912, accepted an appointment to the chair of psychiatry and neurology in Berlin, Put him at the head of his field in the entire country of Germany. And he held that post to his death in 1948. Uh, he referred to himself as an empirical scientist. That is, Karl Bonhoeffer did. Um, he kept Freud and Jung and Adler at arm's length in regard to his practice. He was very skeptical of their, their theories. He avoided speculation regarding the mind. And, and really focused on what could be observed or deduced with one's senses, and he applied that to psychology and even religion. Uh, and, and we would probably refer to Karl Bonhoeffer as an agnostic. was not a Christian. Karl loved his children, though. Taught them how to respond with calm and with an, an emotionless calmness to all their circumstances and how to keep their senses about them. And this, this would, in the Lord's providence, serve young Dietrich well later in his life. I'm going to say more about that in just a moment. Uh, while keeping their rational faculties about them and responding in passion. And this is Karl Bonhoeffer in his agnostic state. His service. Um, which, by the way, the Lord doesn't need Christians to affect change. If you read your Old Testament, you'll discover there are places where the Lord calls Cyrus, a pagan king, his servant. The Lord will get work done. He will get work done. He will bring the kingdom. And so even Karl Bonhoeffer, the Lord used him to train his children in ways, and, and, and several of his children would be involved in the same plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler as Dietrich was involved in. And their calm demeanor about them helped them to keep their head in some intense situations. And they responded in rationality and passion. And that was thanks to their father's raising. Loved his children. Loved his children. Carl wouldn't call himself a Christian, but he did show respect for his wife. Paula's teaching. Teaching them scripture. Teaching them hymns. 
Um, Carl even went to the level of participating with his wife and his children in their participation in Christian holidays in Germany. Um, and so he encouraged his children to be involved in those things. Paula Bonhoeffer was said to have presided over a well-appointed home. She taught the children at home until they were seven or eight because of her distrust of the German public school system. And she described it with a common maxim in Germany that uh, several have written about. And this was the maxim. Uh, Germans had had their backs broken twice, once at school and once in the military. And so she would school them. And this is, this is a providential thing because her education as a child was at a place called Hernhut. Hernhut was founded by Count Zinzendorf in the 18th century of the Moravians. Those missions-loving, God-fearing, Scripture-reading, Bible-obeying Moravians. And Paula had her raising at Hernhut. And so she continued that pietistic tradition of reading the Scriptures, studying the Scriptures, knowing the Scriptures, meditating on the Lord, spiritually engaging the Lord. And Carl allowed that to happen in the home. She appointed over her children in this time two ladies to help, Fraulein Kathy uh, and Maria von Horn, both schooled at Hernhut as well. And these two ladies would have a profound impact on those children, particularly Dietrich. And his devotion to Scripture and the spiritual disciplines of Christianity as influenced by the Moravians. And this would have a profound effect on Dietrich's spirituality as he grew in the faith. It influenced his theological studies and I would argue served in the providence of God to direct Bonhoeffer away from the prevailing liberal theology of the day. In which he would align himself with a guy named Karl Barth. Uh, who set a standard for a revolution of conservative scholarship in the discipline of theology. And I, I think in God's providence had everything to do with his raising under this Moravian sense of the love of Scripture and the reliability of Scripture. Under this teaching, Dietrich began to show a desire for the study of the Scriptures. He was intensely curious about theological questions. And he would ask his teachers and the pastor who presided over his training in catechism in the Lutheran church questions that they were not able to answer. Um, and, and his curiosity began to grow. Bonhoeffer loved the Scriptures. He loved singing the hymns of the faith. And all of this would pay off later in his service. He had seven siblings. Carl Friedrich, who was a professor of physics and the only son of the Bonhoeffer household to die a natural death. Walter died on the Western Front in World War I. Klaus, he was the lead attorney for Lufthansa. Um, sentenced to death with his boss, Rudiger Schleiger, who was head of Lufthansa and married one of the Bonhoeffer girls. So Klaus would die. Was not a Christian. In his plot to assassinate Hitler along with his brother. Sister Ursula, Christine, Sabina, Dietrich's twin sister and then Susanna. Dietrich was executed by hanging. The age of 39. 39. Did a lot in his 39 years. Did a lot in his 39 years. You don't need a lifetime to change the world. Just need to obey. Just obey. Just obey. 39 years old. On April 9, 1945, at Flossenburg concentration camp, along with others who had been working with him to end the life of Adolf Hitler, Dietrich's death came just three weeks before the Allies liberated this particular camp. Klaus had been executed 
before Dietrich was, and he was buried in a mass grave. And the surviving family had not heard news of Dietrich's execution, and they were holding out hope that he was still alive. Finally, um, sometime later, um, his family heard from friends who had heard a radio broadcast from England about a memorial service held in honor of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And they heard it on an American radio station broadcasting from England that Bonhoeffer was dead. And so they came and told his family and then they discovered that he was gone. Many people lived and died in Germany in World War II. So what makes Bonhoeffer worth our taking a look at? Why not Karl Barth? Why not some others? And here's why. I think Bonhoeffer's contribution is not his success in taking out Adolf Hitler because he and his fellow conspirators failed. If you've seen the movie The Valkyrie, uh, he was involved in that plot along with Stauffenberg and, and General Canaris. And, um, he, was, he was working in that. They failed. It wouldn't also be so much Bonhoeffer's individual works like The Cost of Discipleship, which I know some of you guys have read, and I would, I would encourage you to go pick up the book and read it yourself. It'll change your life, by the way. The Cost of Discipleship will change your life. Uh, life Together, which currently our deacons are reading, Life Together, or his magnum opus, Ethics. Those works are, are wonderful, should be read, and they're worth time to plow through them. But it's the combination of living out what he wrote about in these works by faith that epitomized the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer's worth learning about because he understood, unlike many in his day and our current time, that faith and action have to go hand in hand or it's not faith. There is no such thing as faith that is cheap. Bonhoeffer called that faith that doesn't cost us something is cheap grace. When Christ calls a man, he would say he bids him come and die. Because Christ has removed from all of us any eternal risk. No one in this room carries any risk on your life. This is something Christians have to begin to understand. We have no risk. If you lose your job over following Christ, there's no loss there. It's gain for you. And Bonhoeffer's contribution is just that. That in his life we see Hebrews 11.1 1, lived out in such a way in modern time, in complex circumstances, in complex moral questions that should encourage us to get in the game. And so Bonhoeffer's worth taking a look at because he was willing to make decisions that make us cringe because his decisions went far beyond simple questions about simple rights and wrongs to the issue of what is truth, what is the will of God, what is the cost on my life, and the willingness to die for it and fight for it. I said this a few weeks ago when I talk about, we talked about um, Rahab. The question isn't so much what are we willing to die for, but what are we willing to actively fight for? It's a different question. It's one thing to passively allow your life to be taken. It's another thing to see something that's not 
totally in focus morally and have to apply the Scriptures to make a conclusion about and fight for truth. We have issues in our culture like that today. And the church is marginalized on them. Silent. Because we think it comes down to a political vote. Politics cannot stop the kingdom. And when the church is not marginalized, politics will follow us. It doesn't come down to a vote on November 6th. Let me liberate you. It comes down to you and I obeying by faith the Scriptures and doing what they say. Bonhoeffer got that. I feel better. So what are some broad strokes I want to paint for you this morning? To, to, to... It's driving me crazy, but I've got to paint the broad strokes. The first broad stroke I want to paint is one that continues to surface in all the lives of the people that we've taken a look at. And that's the, the broad stroke of providence. The providence of God. Just the right stuff at just the right time for Bonhoeffer. The more I read Scripture and the more I read about the lives of saints, known and unknown to man, the more I read about God in the Scriptures, the more I... And by the way, I just want to encourage you here with something. I'm, uh, this July, I will be, have been a Christian for 20 years. And a wise old saint gave me an old Bible reading plan and by God's grace, I've stuck with it every year since I've been a Christian. Sometimes I have to catch up. Sometimes I get behind, which everybody does. I have to take some time and catch up. But by God's grace, I've been through my New Testament 40 times and the Old Testament 20 times. And the more I read, the more I realize I don't know. And the more I realize I don't know, the more I see the amazing providential grace of God to not miss a thing. He doesn't paint in broad strokes. He paints in meticulous detail your life and mine. And the more I read about the saints in Christian history and the people of Scripture, and the more I read the Scriptures, the more I'm convinced that you are right where you are today, not because of mistakes, not because of errors, or not because of your being the captain of your fate, but because the Lord and His grace has you in the palm of His hand through the gospel. He will not let you go. He will march you toward the completion of the Great Commission. He will move you in the direction you need to go. You just need obey. If you obey today, 20 years from now, you'll be right where you need to be. It's not complicated. The Lord is amazingly providential, weaving together history and having all the right pieces in place. The reality that Father is working to preserve and govern His creation and His creatures and history to fulfill His purposes and the good of His people and the destruction of rebels while using the willing actions of men to do so completely blows my mind. Whether it's Mueller's ten days with an unnamed pastor in Teenmouth that changed the trajectory of his life, or whether it be Bonhoeffer's being educated by Moravians on the front end, which would lead to his rejection of liberal theology and the embracing of conservative theology that would lead to his spiritual walk with the Lord, that would lead to the penning of books that you and I read today. Because the Lord gave him a mom who believed, two teachers who believed, 
who believed the Scriptures were true so that at an early age that teaching would not leave him later in life. That, that's not a mistake. That's not accidental. It's not good luck. If you believe in the God of the Bible, there is no luck. The lot is cast into the lap. May I finish it? It's every decision is from the Lord. Isn't that a glorious reality? The lot doesn't even fall apart from the Lord's dictation. Isn't that awesome? If you believe the gospel today and you're living by faith, there's no risk. And you can't misstep if you're seeking to obey. So, fear not. Just go. He's that sovereign over your days. Isn't that good news? That encourages the fire out of me. Helps me get up in the morning and go, I'm not sure exactly how I'm supposed to deal with the situation today. I'm a little confused and lost. But you know what? I just got to obey what's written. Do my best to be faithful to what's here. And if I just, oh, if I do that in this next 20 minutes, if I can just hang on to that for 20 minutes, I might make it to the end of the day and still be faithful to Scripture and not have misstepped. And thankful to Bonhoeffer's mother and those two teachers who are unaware today of their influence in his life. That because of their influence, Bonhoeffer would be attracted to Karl Barth, who actually, Eric Metaxas said, actually believed the Bible and believed the God of the Bible existed, would lead to his adoption of an ethic that would lead to his demise, which is one of the reasons we know who he is today. This decision, or this system of belief, would affect Bonhoeffer's decision-making to enter the resistance from the study of Scripture and in determining the will of God. All of that when he was a little fellow. Which, by the way, nothing in your past, nothing in your past, you need to hear this, this is how good and sovereign the Lord is, is unusable in the hands of the potter. You need to know that. No hurt, no wound is unusable in the hands of the potter. And so Bonhoeffer's life was providentially and gracefully moved through the hands of his mother and two teachers. Second broad stroke I want to paint for you today. And by the way, this is going to feel very disjointed. There's no other way I could put it together, so I'm sorry. There's no nice little transition sentence that moves us to, you know, along. You're like, oh, that was seamless. It's not seamless. It's, it's a speed bump. So, second broad stroke, Bonhoeffer's American experience. Bonhoeffer had a chance to come to America. It's one of the key, key times in his life. And it was key for one reason alone. Bonhoeffer came to America and he got to attend Union Seminary in New York City, bastion of liberal theology, and discovered that Americans were lazy academically. He said this, Americans were lazy students, lazy professors, and it's amazing how Bonhoeffer was able to stay in a bastion of liberal theology and thrive, but he did. Um, 
It would be Bonhoeffer's exposure in New York City. However, this is the one reason why his trip to America the first time was key. His exposure to black culture in America and becoming friends with Franklin Fisher at Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem, New York, that would lead to his understanding of oppression. It would lead to his understanding of what it is to be on the other side of the fence, to not be the dominant one, to not be the one in the majority, that would lead him to be awakened to the need and the plight of the Jewish people in Germany. It would be his love of black music in America, particularly gospel music, that would lead him to learn to meditate on the truths of Scripture and allow the emotion of the truth of God to connect and the passions connect with the truth of God and work themselves out into passionate actions. Amazing how he described the soul nature of the music that connected with him in ways he couldn't describe. And he said, I was taught as a good German not to be emotive. And as a good Bonhoeffer, not to respond emotively to those things. But it stirred my soul. And he said it began to move outward from him in, in, in these things that he had to passionately do and move toward. And the discovery of the black Christian culture in America began to move his heart and his soul for the Jewish people in his country who were being obviously, systematically destroyed. He loved hearing the theology of the songs and how they moved outward into passion. It would also be this experience that helped him realize he couldn't stay in America. He would get a chance to come back one more time. And he said he, the very second he stepped off the ship and into New York City, he knew he had made a mistake. And he instantly went to his friends and said, I have to go home. And I think it was like six days later, he got back on a ship and left. He understood that if I'm going to fight in the minority for what is right, I have to be present to fight what is right. Because when this is over, I can't minister to those people and the church knowing I escaped the difficulty they were in. So therefore, I have to go back and live that difficulty with them. And if I live, I live. If I die, I die. So the comfort of America proved to be a burr in his saddle and it moved him back to the conflict of his homeland. I'm going to say, I'm going to conclude all these things nice and neatly, hopefully in a minute. Another broad stroke. Bonhoeffer's church struggle. The Nazis were neo-pagans. They wanted to destroy Christianity. Uh, but Hitler thought the churches were too strong to do this all at once. So the Nazis began to ban church youth groups, took over schools, including church-run schools. Um, the Nazis attempted to have the churches turn over even baptismal records so that the names of Jews who had converted to Christianity could be discovered. This is because the Nazis were racist. Um, particularly, they were social Darwinists, believers in eugenics. And they learned some of that from American scientists. And by the way, Margaret Sanger, founder of Planned Parenthood, was a eugenist. And the reason she formed her organization was to stamp out what she believed were genetically inferior races, including people with mental and physical disabilities. 
And just so you know, your government funds that at the tune of quite a few million dollars a year. Just so you know. And if you don't know, you better start asking some questions. Because every time you pay your taxes, social Darwinists get a piece of it. Nazis were social Darwinists. And as a result, that led to their seeking to execute and do away with any genetically, what they perceived to be any genetically inferior race or individual. They wanted to get rid of things too Jewish in Christianity. That even included their intentionality of downplaying the Old Testament. And they would seek to infiltrate the Lutheran church by appointing pastors that were friendly to the regime in the Lutheran church. They took over the Lutheran church and began to appoint pastors friendly to Nazi ideology. That led Bonhoeffer and Bart and several other men to get together and form what was called the Confessing Church, a group of Protestant churches, church leaders who would grow churches believe the gospel and would stand up to the Nazi leadership. The confessing church broke ties with the state church. Bonhoeffer in that got to work with some of the greatest theologians of his day, Bart, one of them, Hermann Sasse, I think I pronounced Sasse, Sasse, anyway, whatever, S-A-S-S-E, and that E is kind of eh at the end, so anyway. Um, as a theologian, Bonhoeffer gradually began to develop in his, in his theological understanding of the application of the ministry of the church to the situation, standing up against the Nazis and staying in Germany when he could have left, was an outworking of this establishment of the Confessing Church. The Confessing Church set up its own seminary, Zinks and Finkenwald, Finkenwald, to train pastors. But because they weren't state-sponsored, they had no textbooks. Guess what they used as their textbook? The Bible. And so Bonhoeffer would take these men and play these, these, these records for them, these, these old vinyl records that he got in New York of, of these black choirs singing gospel songs. They would listen to them, and he would try to get Get them to, you, do you feel it? Do you, and they're like, feel what? What is feeling? We don't know feeling. We Germans, we don't feel. And so he would try to teach them how to feel the, the movement of the theology in their soul. And they would study for hours passages of Scripture. He would have them for an hour every morning meditate on these passages of Scriptures. Why meditate? Why, why do we need to meditate? Why do we need to think? Why do we need to feel? And they would teach them how to meditate on these passages of Scripture. They spent a inordinate amount of time on the Sermon on the Mount. They came to the conclusion that they were not at this point to fight or go to war. But in 1939, the seminary students had their rug pulled out from under them. The seminaries were shut down by the Gestapo. And the students were drafted. And their options were to fight or be lined up and shot. Some of them were shot. Many of them said, I'll I'll go. So the seminaries of the Confessing Church were declared illegal. And the students set off to fight on the Eastern Front. Bonhoeffer would spend much time writing letters in response to them because they would write back confessing their sin. And the one that bothered them the most was that they were forced to shoot Jewish prisoners and bury them in mass graves. And they would write Bonhoeffer. And Bonhoeffer would respond to them and encourage them with the gospel and... um, this just horrible situation for them. 
So they were now faced with a decision to fight their government, which ran against the grain of the German soul, or comply with their government and thus cast their vote for its atrocities. And by the way, for the German, the church and the state were linked. And they were now forced to see the line between those two. And to our denomination's credit, in the Reformation, this is probably the chief and dominant reason I'm with believer baptism that I'm a Baptist, is because of our denomination's belief as a radical reformer that the church and the state should be separate. The church should not run the state. The state should not run the church. And by the way, don't be ignorant in that debate. Separation of church and state does not mean that Christians should not pray publicly or that Christians should not be involved in policy making. It means the church does not run the state and the state does not run the church. That's what that means. That's all it means. And I say amen. I don't want a senator sitting out there in the back monitoring what we say so that they can put sanctions on us. That's, I'll die for separation of church and state. You should too. So the Germans were now, these German Christians were forced to see that the, that the government shouldn't run the church. Because the government's drafting these boys, making them commit atrocities. Bonhoeffer believed that the church and individual Christians, and especially the church's pastors, should lead the way now in doing what is right. And unfortunately, many of his fellow pastors would not be willing to follow him as closely as they should have into the fray. And this is a very sad thing. Also for Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer, his involvement would alienate himself from the people he respected most, like Karl Barth. The reason is that it looked like he was working for the Nazis, because what Bonhoeffer decided to do was, instead of being drafted to fight in the military, he would accept an appointment to be in the spy agency called the Abwehr. And so he went to work as a spy for the Nazi regime. The difference is that as a spy, he was not spying for the Nazis, but as a counter-agent to eliminate the Nazis. So Hitler and, and Himmler and all those guys saw Bonhoeffer as an ally. But what they didn't understand was that Bonhoeffer was involved in a deep conspiracy from the generals down to execute Adolf Hitler. And it was the Abwehr that was doing this. But what Bonhoeffer couldn't do was sit down in a private conversation with Bart and go, look, I know it looks like I'm fighting for Hitler, but what you don't understand, I'm a counter-agent. I'm actually working against him. Because his cover's blown. So what Bonhoeffer had to do was had to accept the fact that his alienation from relationships would just be a reality. And this is one of the reasons he wrote the book Life Together and says some of the things he says in that book about Christian fellowship because he didn't get to taste it. We take it for granted. Here's a guy who had to sacrifice fellowship in order to achieve the mission of stopping the atrocities. And so he laid fellowship aside and he longed for it. He wanted it. He needed it. He needed to be in fellowship with Holy Spirit-filled believers and he couldn't have it and he couldn't say anything about it. An emotively horrible situation. And I think what's interesting is we take fellowship so for granted. We're so busy. And American culture and life is so, so 
racked with the pursuit of everything other than the gospel. And we get caught up in it. We don't have fellowship. I think it's our greatest challenge in the next ten years is defining and pursuing legitimate Christian fellowship. As the Bible defines koinonia. We're going to start talking about that in January. So we had to sacrifice all of that. And so many of the confessing church pastors had to believe a lie about his work for the Nazis and be alienated from him. And that was a price he would have to pay relationally. Many mistakenly believed that they could seek to guard the church and ride out the storm. But Bonhoeffer, rightly so, I think, thought that guarding the church fell short of the biblical idea of what the church is. He rightly understood that the church is the present manifestation of the body of Christ. And we were to be ministers of Jesus as we cared for man. This is what Bonhoeffer called the I-Thou relationship. Bonhoeffer believed that Jesus was most epitomized in man working for the good of man. Since Jesus came to die for and serve the good of mankind and dying for sin, then man would most make his life match his words when he was willing to die for his fellow brother or for man in general. I wish I had time to do more on that. In January, we start talking about fellowship. Therefore, a willingness to do what was necessary to do good for man was to work to stop the men who were mercilessly killing other men while doing it under the guise of religion and the brand of Christianity. Great book by Erwin Lutzer called Hitler's Cross and how Hitler abused Christianity to achieve his mission. You should read that. For Bonhoeffer, the church could not be on the sideline. The church had to be in the fray, either rescuing people or seeking to eradicate people who were doing the atrocities. And Bonhoeffer was involved in both. He was involved in both. What eventually got him arrested was an accounting error made by the Abwehr. An accounting error. On monies he was using with others to get Jews out of Germany. So they would take spy money. Pay for their way to go do their work, and while they were do it, while they were doing that, smuggling Jewish people out of the country, and it would be an accounting error that would eventually get him arrested, because the Gestapo and the Abwehr was sort of at each other's throat, and it would be in his detainment after 18 months that they would discover his deeper involvement in the conspiracy that would lead to his hanging. Magnum opus, ethics. Bonhoeffer's greatest work was his book called Ethics. I'll give you a quote from this book. Being a Christian is less about cautiously avoiding sin. And you're going to have to process this, okay? I'm going to throw something on you that's going to require you to think, okay? Being a Christian is less about cautiously avoiding sin than about courageously and actively doing the will of God. That takes some unpacking. It's easy when you're comfortable to focus on little sins. Little sins. But in Bonhoeffer's circumstance, he could be less concerned about minute sins than he was about obeying the will of God as defined by Scripture. 
All of his life, Bonhoeffer had applied the same logic to theological issues that his father applied to scientific issues. There was only one reality. And Christ was Lord over all of it or none of it. A major theme for Bonhoeffer was that every Christian must be fully human in bringing God into his whole life, not merely into some spiritual realm. In other words, Bonhoeffer believed that if Jesus is Lord over all reality, then I have to bring Christ to bear, not just in the spiritual, light, ethereal, non-hands-on things that people can't see in my quiet time. But I have to bring the Lordship of Christ into rule over everything. Every sphere, every place I set my foot and cast my eye, Jesus is Lord over that. And as His servant, as His hands and feet, I must be in that, bringing salt and light to that. It's so easy to make my Christianity about my internal unpleasantries and little things that happen on the inside and let everything out here that's rotting away continue to rot while we sit on the sideline. And Bonhoeffer said, as a Christian, we can't do that. So he wasn't concerned about the little sins as much as he was obeying the will of God for the advance of the kingdom over there where they're killing Jews and making my seminary students shoot other people who are innocent. So Bonhoeffer believed that it was his job and our job to learn a system of ethics that was wholly and completely built on the will of God. Jesus coming to take on flesh and die for sinners was a definition of what it meant to be truly human and to be truly in community and truly engaged in the world around them. Therefore, the Christian taking on the struggle of the people around them and doing what is best for them was essential to the Christian's development of an ethical system. If you don't know what ethics is, it's a study of right and wrong. And I don't know if you've noticed or not, but the Scriptures don't say when Adolf Hitler is executing Jews, thou shalt do X, Y, and Z. Right? It's not written, is it? The Scriptures don't say that when, when there are 50 million unborn babies executed for convenience, thou shalt do X, Y, and Z, does it? Does it? No, it's not written. And so the challenge for Bonhoeffer and the challenge for the Christian was to read the Scriptures. To know the God of the Bible To work feverishly and hard to resolve the situation as best they could with all means possible. Seeking to obey the Lord in everything. And then act courageously to do what needed to be done. Jesus came and He took on flesh and He died for sinners. And as a result, if I follow Christ, I must likewise go in the flesh and work for men and their salvation. And for us, that's a spiritual issue. Pray this prayer. Believe this. You go to heaven. For him it was that bullet will kill more of those innocent people. So what am I going to do? And it's easy on this side of history to look back at Bonhoeffer and go, I shouldn't have done that. And what I'm saying is, maybe we need to do more of what he did. Not so much critique some of his...
tactic as much as imitate his tactic. Because Bonhoeffer believed that we had to get engaged, obey the scriptures as best we can, be less concerned with petty sin and more about the will of God. It's up to the Christian to then apply the truths of Scripture, the situation at hand, and not tweet about it, but act on it. There are no, there are no nice, neat, prepackaged answers to all the globe's challenges. We can sit idly by and debate the rightness or wrongness of how some seek to do something. However, what one can't do is for fear of sinning in small ways be guilty of rebellion in large ways by doing nothing in the face of moral challenges. God, I'm running out of time. I knew this was going to happen. How did Bonhoeffer come to this? How did he come to make these God's will decisions? Here's what Bonhoeffer said. Those who wish to focus on the problem of a Christian ethic are faced with an outrageous demand. From the outset, they must give up as inappropriate to this topic the very two questions that led them to deal with the ethical problem. One, how can I be good? Two, how can I do something good? Instead, they must ask the holy other completely different question, what is the will of God? So for Bonhoeffer, the development of a Christian ethic in response to the moral problems of the day was not how can I be innocent and then how can I do something good about it. It is what is God's will? Do it. We ask the wrong question. So how can I keep myself innocent here? How can I not do something wrong? And then what do I need to do? And Bonhoeffer said those are the wrong questions. The single question is what is the will of God? Do it. You may question his method of getting to that question, but what you can't do is question the effect of obeying a clear, clear mandate in Scripture. What's the will of God? Do it. So how did he do that? Faith and works. James 2, 18-26, Bonhoeffer said that if a Christian believes, they must act. Otherwise, he said, they believe a cheap grace, which is not the gospel, and cannot call themselves Christians. Amen. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. I don't count anymore. I must obey. Jesus is my king. I follow my king. It was inconceivable biblically that a person could claim to be redeemed and a follower of Jesus and not work that out in his service to and for other people. This does not mean going to church. Many Germans continued to go to church and ignored the atrocities that were taking place under their noses. Faith had to work itself out in practice through community with each other and each other fighting for the will of God and truth. He believed you had to determine the will of God. Romans 12, 1 and 2. He said to try and explain right and wrong, to talk about ethics outside of God and obedience to His will is impossible. The Christian had to know the God of the Bible intimately, know Scripture intimately, apply every necessary and biblical action to the resolution of the challenge, and then act courageously. And for Bonhoeffer, this meant actively engaging in the plot to kill Adolf Hitler as a spy for the Nazis and the Abwehr. And so, others thought, working with the Nazis 
And Bonhoeffer had to take the scorn for his action. He had to move from confession to conspiracy. As Eric Metaxas said, I've got to go. I've got to move. Final thing I want to note, the broad stroke. Bonhoeffer from prison and religionless Christianity. When Bonhoeffer was arrested, he was put in Tegel prison for a seeming accounting question. And they wanted to keep him under wraps to find out what the Abwehr was doing with the Third Reich's money. And so he would be arrested while celebrating Karl Bonhoeffer's 75th birthday. And they were celebrating his birthday, singing songs, having a good time, all the while waiting on news of the Stauffenberg plan. He got the phone call that it had failed. Hitler actually said of that failed attempt that it was proof that he was doing what was right and providence was on his side. It wouldn't be long after that the Gestapo would arrest Bonhoeffer and then later on discover his role in the plot. It'd be during that 18 months that the plot would finally be uncovered. He would be transferred to Gestapo prisons and finally to Flossenburg where he'd be hung. While he was in prison, he wrote to his best friend, Eberhard Bethche, B-E-T-H-G-E. And in some of his letters, he wrote things that he didn't necessarily intend to be published. He was just thinking out loud. Some people have taken these works and claimed Bonhoeffer for their side on various issues. But one of the things he said in there, and it's a phrase that has a lot of, I guess you could say, um, gets a lot of play in a lot of places. And it's the phrase, religionless Christianity. I'm going to read what he said, and I, I, I want to tell you what I think Beth G. communicated he meant and what I think he meant. He said, what is bothering me incessantly is the question what Christianity really is or indeed who Christ really is for us today. The time when people could be told everything by means of words, whether theological or pious, is over. And so is the time of inwardness and conscience. And that means the time of religion in general. We are moving towards a completely religionless time. People as they are now simply cannot be religious anymore. Even those who honestly describe themselves as religious do not in the least act up to it. And so they presumably mean something quite different by religious. I think what Bonhoeffer meant by religion was not Christianity as defined by Scripture, but the religion that he spent his theological life and word and deed fighting against. I believe what Bonhoeffer means by religionless Christianity is what we call cultural Christianity. The idea that we're moving toward a time in which Christianity now carries no spiritual or practical connotation whatsoever. We've got to redefine terms. That's what he was dealing with. Is, is if this is what Christianity means, then we have to redefine Christianity because these people are no longer really acting like they are religious at all. And don't think religion the way we use the word religion. That had very different connotations for them. He meant that as pious, lived out, loving Jesus, gospel-centered Christianity. And what he means by religionless Christianity is a Christianity devoid of anything meaningful whatsoever. This is a system that takes names for identification purposes, but has none of the substance of what that name means. It's what Paul said, has a form of godliness, but denies the power. The church in Germany and Christians in general had been too long 
too long, and perhaps Dietrich had in his own reflection taken too long to get in the fight. And that inaction could no longer be called religion. There needed to be a new term to describe church in Germany, and he called it religionless Christianity. They could not be inactive in addressing the issues of the day and carry the name Christian. The reason is that Jesus is not inactive when it came to addressing the fall and rebellion. Listen, everything comes back to God's activity in history in saving man. Rather, Jesus made war on Satan. And as Paul says in Colossians 2.15, he disarmed the demonic powers and shamed them and triumphed over them. Jesus is returning again to conquer and reign. The church is his body. And it cannot be silent or actionless. It must, as its head, Jesus, fight the battle necessary and with all appropriate means. Cultural Christianity makes statements and debates on television that all people are God's children regardless of their stance on who this God is and how they came to know this God. Cultural Christianity or religionless Christianity does nothing to oppose evil actively. Speaks only about their beliefs while doing nothing about them. Uses the church to soothe their conscience but care nothing about the spiritual havoc they make through their sin. They have a form of godliness but but deny its power. They have the theological depth equated to Christian fiction books. That is not biblical Christianity. It's what Bonhoeffer was decrying is the status of a marginalized church which spoke the name of Jesus and meant nothing by it. So what are some tangibles that we can carry away? One, take great joy in knowing that as an adopted child of the Father, you are being providentially led for Father's purpose and your maximum joy. There's some of you in this room that God has put passions in for good, biblical, holy things that are going to be hard to do. And people are going to question you and question your motives. And you're going to fail multiple times. But you need to take great joy in knowing that nothing has been wasted. What others meant for evil, God has meant for good. God's providence is leading and directing. Therefore, fear not. Obey. Just obey. Number two, do not divorce yourself from the rest of the world and be insulated from it. Bonhoeffer's time in America proved key to him understanding what it was like to fight for those in need. For many of us, isolation from the rest of the world can create a sense of fake peace when there is no peace. And we need to be rocked from our fake world into action in the name of Christ for the advancement of His kingdom and the advancement of the gospel. Find a way to know international issues. Read international news. It's all over the web. Google international news. Start clicking on sites. Start reading stuff. Read BBC. Read international information. Know what's around you. I gave you a few weeks ago 14 action items that if you just went and Googled one of them, you would find more information that you could spend a lifetime pursuing. Get engaged globally and see the need around you. Three, do not take the church for granted. 
Although the state doesn't run the church in our country, it's vital to not only guard the church's ability to remain free from influences that prevent us from being effective, but it's our responsibility to fight for truth and right and be engaged in the war of ideas. And it is the church that that is to happen through. The church is the bride of Christ. It is not an ancient, antiquated building. It is the redeemed bride of Jesus Christ for whom He died and rose to secure its redemption. And if you're in Christ, you are that church and you are relevant. You matter and you must engage. Don't take the church for granted. As the writer of Hebrews would say, do not forsake assembling together with other believers. Do not forsake that. Not just here on Sunday mornings, but when believers are gathering under the same mission, gather with them. In community, stuff happens. Don't take the church for granted. Don't sit on the sideline. We must guard, but we must fight for the truth of the kingdom of God and the moral values of God's kingdom fueled by the gospel as redeemed people seeking to bring the power of the gospel to bear in our culture. Not just sitting on the sidelines. Four, actively begin pursuing the will of the Lord. Know the God of the Bible. Know His Word. Apply every necessary and biblical action and act courageously. Bonhoeffer's life shows us the links we must ultimately be willing to go to to follow Christ. Fifth, don't be a cultural Christian. Be a biblical Christian. Be a biblical Christian. That's enough. I said this a few weeks ago. I think it bears repeating. Where are the Holy Spirit gifted Passionate followers of Christ, able to intelligently articulate a biblical worldview, where are they in the realm of ideas in our culture? I want to say some of you college students here, do not go get a ministry degree. Hear me. There's nothing wrong with that. Go get a business degree. Go get a history degree. Go learn how to weld. Go learn how to build something. Go be the absolute best in your field. Listen, if you are filled with the Holy Spirit, you ought to be on the tip of the spear of your discipline. Be the best mathematician you can possibly be to the glory of God. Science is a field that ought to be led by people filled with the Spirit. And engage the world around you with the gospel. Do not sit on the sidelines. Listen, this is one of the problems for, for Christians historically. We go through these peaks and valleys of high academic education, then low academic education, high academic, because then we get high academic education, nobody engages in the culture. Culture goes to pot. And then we get low education, and then all of a sudden, Christians are then disengaged from culture too. Get your education, and then get engaged. Does that make sense? Use your degree for the glory of God and engage the culture around you. Be the absolute best you can possibly be in that field as a follower of Christ, preaching the good news. If it gets you killed, it gets you killed. You gain. Be globally savvy. 
think through how to use that degree somewhere else. Get out of the comfort of our American Disneyland and serve the kingdom and its advancement. Does that make sense? You guys have a chance to change the world in front of you. Don't be satisfied simply to get a paycheck. And to waste it on stuff that's going to rot. Give your life to things that matter. Does that make sense? I'm, I'm, I need to shut up. Gosh. This guy's life is a great illustration to imitate. Is he perfect? No. Does he have flaws? You bet. Many of them. It's like every one of us in this room. But if I can imitate the level of his faith in action, however that has to work out in this context, so be it. I know a hill I'm going to die on. And that's the hill of adoption. It's a biblical mandate. Not an option. When the church becomes the premier adoption agency on the face of the planet, we then have a right to scream about the issue of abortion. Until then, we need to get in the game. When there are more families waiting on babies and churches ready to take care of moms until they have that baby so a Christian family can take it, then there are babies being born, then we can scream. Till then, get in the game. Get in the game. Faith in action. Father, I need to shut up. And so, Father, I need your help to shut up. So help me. Gosh. Father, I just want to ask um, Holy Spirit to, to be guide to truth. Father's done the best I can to represent this guy's life um, as an illustration of Hebrews 11.1. 1. And, and I know I've made mistakes in my understanding of him. And, and I know I've said things that other folks who've read his life would disagree with. And... Um, so, Father, I just want to ask that you will um, cause Holy Spirit to weed out my folly. And pray, Father, that if it's not right, that you would not let it stick in the minds and hearts and souls of your people. These are your people, not my people. So, Father, I just ask Holy Spirit to do his work of guiding into truth and leading into righteousness and counseling. Um, remind us of what's been said in the Scriptures. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd bind the work of the evil one and that, that there would be no lie that would be propagated in the souls of your people that would be believed in any way. I ask that you would cause your truth and your will as clearly laid out in Scripture to be rightly applied by your people in our context. That's going to require a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, a lot of thinking, a lot of hand-wringing, a lot of praying, a lot of doing, a lot of failing. But God, I pray for a people willing to do all of that that's necessary to come to the conclusion of how they need to follow you and obey you in our context. Lord, I pray that you would awaken the sleeping giant of the church and cause us to be engaged in such a way that, that we're not marginalized anymore, but we're powerful and effective, a mighty moving force of your kingdom. Let us be part of that. Let us be part of your beginning that. We pray this in Jesus' name.